This is Cinema Degeneration. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. We're not that different, Dick. I do not enjoy killing, but it's my job. Someone has to do it. Maybe. Me. The hobo with a shotgun. He didn't just eat their bodies. He ate their souls. And I joined in. I'm gonna sleep in your bloody carcasses tonight! I suggest aspirin for the headache. What headache? I'm surprised you don't have a grenade launcher. Couldn't get a permit. Because I cut off his legs. And his arms. And his head. And I'm gonna do the same to you. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. <laughs> Los Angeles, 2019. There was an escape from the off-world colonies. They slaughtered... The assignment? Track down six manufactured humans. He's the best man for the job. But he may die trying to prove it. Harrison Ford is the Blade Runner. Alrighty, folks, welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration's Rucker Hauer Appreciation Month. We are celebrating the life and the works of one Rucker Hauer, the consummate professional that he was, uh, an epic actor, and we are talking about probably his most epic film, at least the one that he is most known for. And I am talking the 1982 cult sci-fi extravaganza Blade Runner. And most specifically, since there are several different versions of this movie out and about, we are doing the final cut, which uh, we believe here that is the, uh, the ultimate uh, cut of this movie. And joining me as my co-host and cohort in crime for the evening is my good buddy, Tony Walters. How the hell are you? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, you 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 get the choice picks whenever you come on the show because I <laughs> I actually had a buddy of mine. He's like, who who is this Tony guy, and why does he get the movies like Big Trouble Little China, Terminator Two, <laughs> movies like that? I'm like, yeah, the guy likes fucking sci-fi, man. So like, I I I know what to ask him to do. <laughs> well, usually it's because I like sci-fi, but also I think it's because I haven't seen half of the uh, like the grindhousey small movie stuff that you guys love so much. Uh, you know, I, I I you know, I, there's a handful here and there that I have seen, but uh, but yeah, you guys you guys are real deep in the woods with it. So it's like I usually am on the more uh, you know popular pop pop culture-y kind of movies, I guess you want to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? Uh, but, but yeah, my buddy was just like, you know, how do I get in one of these movies? I'm like, well, because 
because you don't like half of them. You don't like the big glittery, you know, Terminator and Alien franchise movies. And like, you know, right. you like stuff like, you know, World versus the Vampire Women. I'm like that's. <laughs> <laughs> like, why would you want to review something like Terminator Two when you hate Terminator Two? I don't get it. But anyway, anyway, getting off. Hey, well, off well, you know, it's always nice sometimes to have a perspective that is from the, you know, the other side of the the coin. So. Exactly, exactly. One of these days I'll have to get you on here and we'll uh, do something more obscure just to put you on the spot. <laughs> I'm down. Right on, right on. Well, let's, let's get into it and talk a little bit, a, or a whole lot of bit, about Blade Runner. I will give us, uh, the, the folks at home here, the quick IMDb synopsis. But, like, quite frankly, if you haven't seen this movie by now, the movie's, you know, got... Uh, 40 years old uh, this year, you know, came coming out in 1982. It's almost as old as I am, and that's pretty fucking old. But if you haven't seen it by now, you should you should have seen it by now. Please, while you're even here listening to this podcast, pause the podcast, go home and watch it, and then come back. But here it is. The IMDb synopsis is as follows. A Blade Runner must pursue and terminate four replicants who stole a ship in space and have returned to Earth to find their creator. And I feel like that's one of the laziest IMDb synopsis that I have ever heard. There's, this movie is obviously so much deeper. I mean, yeah, that's the gist of the story. But uh, I think Ridley Scott is, uh, you know, God, if he if he uh, if he read that synopsis, I'm sure he's probably not a fan of the IMDb. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just like as much work as we put into it. That's what you sum it up as, fucking heathens. Well, you know, a good synopsis is supposed to be summed into like two lines and and ultimately that synopsis it is what this movie is uh on for a very surface value uh synopsis for sure yeah now uh i've got a couple questions for you this time uh, we're doing things a little more streamlined here in recent months and uh, this will be a little less of a deep dive discussion and more of a, a, a summary of all the the moving parts now i gotta ask what was you, when did you first watch uh, Blade Runner? Which version wasn't, and what were your first impressions? Uh, the first version that I watched was the theatrical version, and I watched it uh, honestly way later in my life than I should have. I watched it when I was about 24, 25, uh, so about 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, and I honestly I didn't care for it on my first viewing. And I think it may be because I watched the theatrical version. Um, I had a friend who then told me, Hey, you should try out the, uh, either the director's cut or the final cut. I can't remember which one he recommended, but he was like, don't, he's, he said that, you know, there were, he, he informed me of all of the, the issues that were with the theatrical cut and the studio involvement and the, the heavy narration, you know, not being, uh, you know, Ridley Scott's original vision for it and everything. So, um, I went back and revisited the movie probably a couple years later and fell in love with it and um but I, I watched it entirely you know way later in my life and then i grew an appreciation for it even more so as i started making my own movies and um uh, really diving into just you know themes and storytelling and and every time i revisit blade runner i find a new reason to love it nice nice uh, now i i saw this way too young i i saw it God, probably within a year or so after it came out, you know, I was a big fan of, uh, you know, Star Wars, Empire, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I'm like, I got to see everything Harrison Ford's in, you know, even as a six, seven year old, I was like, just hooked. And I just remember not liking it very much at all. 
because it's just it's a it's a deep film. It's an intellectually sound film, and a way over the the mindset of a uh, you know you know wee lad and is you know six seven years old. But uh, I remember being hooked not by uh, Harrison Ford, but by uh, Roy Batty, the the character that uh, Rucker Hauer plays. You know, and I, I, I was, you know, young person. I wasn't, you know, involved in film or interested in film. I just knew what I liked. And I was like, this guy is captivating. And he stole the show. And I, you know, quickly in the, you know, in the, my following years as a teenager, I, I revisited the movie, much like you did, you know, many years later. And I was like, wow, like, you know, I missed something here. Like, uh, now that my brain has developed <laughs> past, you know, cartoon phase and whatnot, I was like, I, I was just intrigued by every step of it, of just the questions that these people have, the replicants have, uh, you know, the the Nexus, Nexus 6, yeah, try saying that 10 times fast, Nexus 6 replicants had the same questions that we all have, you know, they just want to know how long they're going to live, what they can do about it to get more life and wanting to meet their creator, you know, which I think is a lot of questions that we as humans have. And, you know, uh, I think we, I jumped ahead here quite a bit, you know, but uh, Ridley Scott uh, directed this from a story uh, based on the Philip K. Dick novel, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? You know, the screenplay was adapted by Hampton Fancher and David Webb Peoples, you know, and Phil K. Dick was not a fan of this uh, film when it was being made, and he did not appreciate the, the original script uh, until they made some adjustments. And unfortunately, he passed away before the movie was released and never really got to see it other than some preliminary special effects shots, which I think is uh, a sad testament that he never got to see this. But um, I, I, just, I love how it starts the opening crawl about the Nexus six and it tells you very much how they're treated, you know, how they were created for work in space. But when they, you know, became a, uh, a problem, they were uh, hunted down and killed. Uh, and it was called not execution, but retirement. There's something I like about that phrase. It's, there's something that just tells you just in this futuristic world here, it's a, uh, I think very much a dystopian view of the future. It's not a pretty, pretty view of the future. Oh, for sure. I, I, and you know, and that's, you know, I love sci-fi movies. I love like dystopian future stories. Um, I'm actually, I just picked up the other day. I picked up uh, Philip K. Dick's um, a scanner darkly and, oh, great uh, and uh, do androids dream of electric sheep. Cause I haven't read either of them. I haven't read Philip K. Dick at all. So I was like, I've been, uh, over this past uh, couple of years, kind of, kind of since like, like in the pandemic, I kind of rediscovered my love of books, and I've started reading quite a lot. And uh, so I've just kind of been diving back into some older sci-fi. And I thought, you know what, I haven't read these. Let's just go ahead and grab them. But um, so I was really excited to to do this show because I am kind of starting to dive more into my love of sci-fi in general. Like I watched Interstellar the other day for the for the first time in a couple. Well, it's been, been a few years since I watched that. So I've just been like really diving into I'm I'm uh, I just finished a, uh, another sci fi book uh, here by um, uh, the guy that wrote The Martian, Andy Wire. Uh, um, so I'm, 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 you know, really prepared and ready for 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 talking some sci fi. But that opening scene, The Crawl, fantastic. And then when you cut from The Crawl to just this 
you know, LA noir, like just this LA landscape, this dystopian future LA with all the, like these explosions kind of happening. And, and knowing now, like what it took to make that and that, that what you're seeing on screen is entirely practical and it's all just miniatures and composites, uh, you know, all shot together. It's, it, it really is mind blowing. And just the, you know, the, the, things that you can you can pick up on one when you started i don't know playing around with those things is just the the way that that fi- like the fire moves there there are little tells that you know tell you that it's miniature and not cg and i i love the the visual look of the entire movie every time it cuts to just here's a really long shot of just the landscape or the cars flying through the air and just explosions and the billboards and all that, like the world building element, this, this cyberpunk universe that they're, you know, kind of building and also kind of, you know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this, I mean, this movie is very much like the, the, you know, if cyberpunk didn't, or, or, you know, it kind of started cyberpunk in a sense, or at least brought it into popular culture. Oh yeah, it definitely did. I think it was the first movie that did at least, um, uh, a broad, um, successful level. You know what I mean? Uh, and I agree. Those cityscape shots—they're—they're they're just exquisite. They're things of pure beauty. And if you know what you're looking for, you know you can pick out that <clears throat> that they're uh, composited. You know, and they're done with miniatures. But I don't think I've ever seen work done quite to that extent, to that beautifully. It's just a thing of beauty. I could watch that opening shot going over the city. Those opening shots over over again on a loop and probably just be happy, <laughs> you know, just with those shots alone. Yeah. And the, the score that's behind it too. I recently for Christmas got uh, like a pretty nice sound bar for the TV. So I cranked that this morning and, uh, cause I, I watched this uh, last week and then I went ahead and rewatched it again this morning before the show. And uh, this morning I, I cranked, I cranked my sound bar and that thing just like, just like, well, when just the, like when vibrating the my TV rising and go, going up and down is this I can imagine with a nice sound bar that how great that would <laughs> how immersive that would be yeah it was, it was pretty great. <laughs> but yeah uh, my first impressions uh, you know especially when it cuts to Leon you know getting the boycott test is like every every detail no detail was spared like making this place look like Accessible, you know, in LA in 2019 or just the earth in general, I know it's, it's just relegated to, you know, LA for, for this movie, but you know, you get the idea of the entire earth. Everybody can't wait to get off. There's even mentioned, you know, when Jay Sebastian comes along, you know, like, why is that why you're still on earth? Because he has that aging disease that makes his, you know, glands age at a rapid pace. And he's like, yeah, I couldn't get the, you know, past the physical to get off earth. It's like the dredges of society are only ones left still on earth. There's always those automated ads that are going on throughout the, you know, begin again in a new world of, you know, opportunity and adventure. It's just like, yeah, yeah, everybody wants to fuck off of Earth. And I think it, you know, 2019 of uh, Earth is not that different from 2022 Earth. It's, it's, it's a little it's a little less dirty, a little less rainy, uh, a lot less uh, androids running around. But uh, I think it's anybody would just be like, yeah, we're going to go to the Mars colony and get the fuck off this rock. But, yeah, it, it paints a great world. And it's, you know, a nice 50-50 mix Maybe not so much 50-50, maybe more like 75-25, but like of sci-fi and film noir. It's very much rooted in that film noir of, of the 40s and 50s.
But uh, yeah, but then we get enter Rick, Rick Deckard just trying to get his grub on. He's a, a Blade Runner that is, you don't really ever know like if you know he said he quit, but did you know did he retire? Did he quit? You know he's just trying to get his grub on and get some some noodles when uh, uh, Gaff shows up, and the yeah. Gaff character is is you know it's just sprinkled a little bit here and there you know throughout the, the movie, but it's an interesting character. Very much so, an interesting character. I was just thinking that today, and I know that there are some Blade Runner or Blade Runner uh, like anime series. There's like the Black Lotus show. Uh, I know. I wanted I to show. see that. Yeah, it was a show. I wanted to see that, but uh, it was like on Adult Swim, and I don't have adult. It's adults. on HBO Max right now. I Ooh. noticed that this morning. But I did not I, I realize don't know that. If that character has ever been, you know, dove into anymore or expanded upon. And I, I was, I was curious today while watching it, if, if that's something I, I might look into to just to see, cause I'm, I'm curious more about him, but with Deckard too, like it, he is, you know, retired or off the force or whatever, however you want to look at it at the beginning of this movie. And they, you know, they bring him back on to do this, you know? So I, I and that's another thing I, you know, maybe, you know, it's all up to interpretation, but it's, you know, his character obviously has some, um, you know, just like emotional ties or, or not emotional ties, but, you know, he's starting to, you know, not enjoy his job so much. <laughs> um, yeah, you know. I mean, it's obvious that he has nothing but like utter contempt for the replicants. But like, I don't think he he can hack the job anymore. Like when it comes on this, the scene with Zora, you know, when he has to shoot her down, you know, like. I know I'm talking about the theatrical cut for a brief second in the voiceover. He's like, you know, it, you know, it was, it didn't make him feel any better about shooting a woman in the back. You know, is this like, it's, it, I think he was just being brought down, you know, by the, the harsh realities of his job that he was just, you know, killing people that just, you know, for some reason just wanted to live longer. I think that's what the the sad thing is about these replicants. They just have a four year, they have a four year lifespan. They're, they're born, you know, their incept date, you know, is set. And then, you know, they have a four year lifespan and they want, uh, I'm really torn as an adult about this movie, the older I get, you know, with the replicants, are they really the bad guys? Yeah, the, everybody in this movie is kind of a different shade shade of gray. I mean, uh, the older I get, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm not, um, where do you fall with Deckard? Is he a hero, an anti-hero, or is he just another shade of bad guy? Because he's he's you know he's I'm, I'm torn. I don't I don't necessarily see Deckard as the hero anymore in this movie. Right. And I, I think that's the the great part about this movie is that the way that the movie sets it up, you know, is that Deckard is your protagonist and your antagonists are the replicants. But as the movie progresses and especially as you start to dive uh, more and more uh, into uh, Rugger Hauer's character, um, I can't think of his name right now off the top of my head. Oh, Roy Batty. Ray? Roy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you when you start when you know you start to dive more into those characters, you start to realize that those characters, like the, the replicants, are not the bad guys. They're slaves, uh, you know, yes. looking for freedom. And and so you know, Deckard, he's not necessarily. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say there. The, the great thing about the movie is there. There are no heroes and villains. It's just uh, a matter of perspective, and that Deckard, 
is a character that goes through an experience throughout this movie. He goes from somebody whose job it is to hunt and kill these people. And then by the end of it is realizing that these, these, you know, machines or robots or whatever you want to call them, the replicants, these are, uh, they're, they're alive and they're living. And, uh, you know, and we, we, you know, we get more into that world of it all with the sequel. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't view him as as a hero or a villain. I, I view him as a as a human <laughs> who who just or, has flaws, you know, who just has flaws like anybody else and is doing the best he can to do the job that has been he's been given. And, uh, you know, and, you know, the movie starts with him not no longer. You know, he's not doing this job anymore. They bring him back onto the force to do this job. So he they, clearly they has already. Hand, yeah, they know? clearly are. He's clearly already <laughs> left for some reason before this, before this, before the events of this movie, he has already decided that he doesn't like doing this job and doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't really want to, they do force his hand. They, you know, pretty much beg him to come back. You got to do it. And, that, that's you know, right. I kind of feel like the one bad guy of this movie is captain Bryant, you know, the usual, you know, captain, you know, hard ass played by Emma, Emma Walsh. You know, a great character, but like he forces his hand. He tells him straight up. He's like, if, if you're you're either a cop or you're little people, you know, and he tells him, you know, <laughs> you he even says the guy got no choice. Right. You know, and uh, Brian tells him no choice, pal. <laughs> you know, like you're either in it or you're going to be, a, you know, or put a, you know, bullseye on your forehead. And right. Th- and I think that the, the sequel, as much as I like it, I, I do like the sequel quite a bit because uh it's just beautifully directed. I mean, beautiful cinematography. It's, it's another movie that just creates a beautiful dystopian world that I love. But it it kind of negates some questions, you know, that this movie posed was whether or not, and I, I this is the next question I have for you, is whether or not Rick Deckard is a replicant himself. Because they posed that question several times, but the movie... The second movie, the sequel, kind of negates those questions, and I, I'm curious to your thoughts on that, of whether well, or not Rick Deckard was a replicant. Well, I don't. I mean, I, you know, and I think that. Well, I think that's the the point of the movie. Like, you, you know, is um, with, with if if you ask me if he is or isn't, my answer is yes. <laughs> my answer is just yes, he is. Yes, he isn't. It, it, it him being a replicant, if he is or isn't, does not matter to the story. Uh, and right. it, it, it let like, and that's why I love the sequel so much because they don't bother to answer that question. They, they let you still kind of interpret the actions in the sequel to like, so, okay, you know, spoiler alert, like, you know, him and him and, uh, Rachel have a baby. Uh, he doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's human, <laughs> right? you know, like, like we don't, we don't know what that means. Uh, because you know. one replicant can have a baby, then that means two replicants together could have a baby, but a replicant and human could have a baby. I mean, right. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know what that means. But I, I love the, the, the fact that the, the final cut kind of hammers it home for you, like, you know, putting that hammers the question home. Doesn't t- give you any answers whatsoever with, you know, the unicorn sequence. And especially, you know, again, spoiler alert, like you just said, at the end when, you know, him and Rachel get away and Gaff had left that little origami unicorn there. Is this like, was it just coincidence or did, uh, you know, Gaff had some insight into Rick Deckard's file? You know, right. so it, it, it raises the question, but then again, it gives you no answer, which I, I, I fucking love it. It's just like, you know, I always 
I always take it back to like the the briefcase and Pulp Fiction. What's in it? It can be whatever the fuck you want it to be. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And it, because it doesn't matter to the story, and those the, that's what I love. Uh, that's good storytelling is not feeling like you have to answer all the questions and uh and that's why the theatrical version didn't really work very well because in that movie with the narration they felt the need they had to answer every question and like right. literally hold your hand through the movie and go this is what's go going on and that's just not the kind of storytelling that i appreciate and it's not the kind of storytelling that i you know i try to i try to write i i i my biggest pet peeve in storytelling is when I feel like the filmmakers treat the audience like they're like they're stupid. Like people are smart. They put it together. Yeah. And and then the ones who don't get it just don't get it. You know, there's just yeah. some people that are never going to get that kind of storytelling. And that, that just means the movie's not for them. Right. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, I mean, I know we're trying to do a more streamlined version of this, but I got to talk about some stuff. Then. <clears throat> The Nexus Nexus Six failsafe, which is a four-year lifespan, I think they, you know, uh, Tyrell, uh, who's played by, uh, gosh, I forgot his name, Joe Turkle, who was, you know, uh, most most infam infamously, you know, from uh, The Shining, was the the evil bartender, and this right, is kind of, right, and, and, right, right, <laughs> yeah, like I, I feel like he's almost playing the same character, <laughs> you know. But Dr. Eldon Tyrell set that failsafe in there to have a four-year lifespan because I think he knew they would learn that they were they were hyper-intelligent, better than us in every way. I mean, he even says it himself when he meets with uh, Deckard, you know, uh, when he goes there to chest out the, the boycott machine when he, you know they find out that the gist of the story, you know, being that six – uh, six of the Nexus Six uh, replicants had landed on Earth. A couple of them got fried in a electrical field, but there's four of them running around still. You know, you got Roy Batty played by Rooker Howard, Pris played by Daryl Hannah, Brian James playing Leon Kowalski, and then Joanna Cassidy as Zora. And then Sean Young would be our bonus uh, replicant, uh, Sean Young playing Rachel. But when he goes there to meet with uh, Tyrell to chest out the machine, he uh, before he lets you know permits him to test the machine out on uh, Rachel, he's just like you know he gives him a little bit of a backstory you know on how they created the the replicants and I love the line when he says it in which it was used over and over again in a Rob Zombie song, we'll try not to hold that against him, but uh, <laughs> but he says you know more human than human is our motto and these things are are just that they're stronger than us they're better than us they're more intelligent than us. And I think that was the reason why I'm, I don't know if it was a, a predetermined thing by Tyrell to like so that they wouldn't overtake or by the time that they, you know, these uh, slave replicant androids would learn what their fates were, th their time would be up. But the Nexus 6, you know, it's uh, a little kink in his armor, you know, it's just not going to uh, it's not going to it's not going to work out as well for him as as I, I think he thought it was going to work out because when Roy Batty shows shows up and that, that confrontation scene we'll get to yeah. that when we get to it but oof it's rough it's very rough very yeah very very rough <laughs> no i i really enjoy this uh the scene with him and rachel and him going through this uh like giving her this test and you know it takes over 100 questions to for him to you know figure question it, it to figure it out and i i, I really 
I love, I just love how, like, we kind of, you know, we kind of, you know, we're moving through this a little quickly, but like the, the first time we get this type of test is right in the opening scene. Um, and in that opening scene, when we get it, you know, how uncomfortable and the tension with it and just how, how weird the whole, you know, all the dialogue is. And you're trying to figure out like what, what, you know, what's the point of it all. And then in this scene, we, you know, there's more of that, but we can we have a little bit more of an understanding when we go into the scene about like what it's for to a degree, right, but they, you right. know, they elaborate more in the scene. Uh, uh, so you can understand it more, but I, I just, I love the, the tension between, between him and Rachel in this. I, I think that there's a really just like a, a kind of a beautiful connection between the two of them here that is very subtle and it's, it's very film noir, but it's very, very subtle. And I, I think that, you know, it, it allows us to, to buy in more so as the, their relationship grows as, as the movie grows. Yeah, because I think you know their intention, at least, uh, at least for the film. Is that uh, you know Rachel is supposed to be you know the way she's presented is she's supposed to be the femme fatale, but she's anything but a femme fatale. You know, she's a replicant that doesn't know they're a replicant. You know, uh, even when, you know, Deckard has the conversation with Tyrell. I love the conversation between him and Tyrell when he's like, you know, she's beginning to suspect, uh, you know, uh, Tyrell says. And it's like, suspect, you know, how can I not know what it is? You know, it's like, how can it, you know, and he finds out, you know, that Rachel was a different model than the rest. You know, that she was implanted with memories you know, of Tyrell's nieces and other people, you know, and I think that's just an amazing concept of an artificial intelligence being being created and not knowing, then discovering that they're, you know, there's something else, that they're this, you know, replicant of sorts. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great sequence. It's just like, and, and as their relationship progresses, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's fucking great storytelling. Uh, it's, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it, you know, it, it it starts that whole concept right then and there with, okay, so there are replicants that can not know that they're replicants. Like it, it implants that seed right then and there, which we, we, you know, which grows more with our, you know, with Deckard as, as the movie goes. Uh, now, I got to make a, a, a little bit of a left turn here. I do have a question for you that may seem out of, uh, out of, out of place here, but do you have a favorite character in this film and why? Um, I mean, I would say that, you know, similar to, to, I mean, I think you, and you know, the, 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 the favorite character in it is Roy, you know, he, he's yeah. the one that's, that is misunderstood and, uh, you know, is, you know, an angel fallen from grace and, and there's just like so much, like there's so much great thematic storytelling around his character and just, just, you know, all of the, the, the whole theme of the movie rests on his shoulders. And I think that. You know, but the, the great thing I love about the storytelling is that the, for the first half of this movie, Deckard is the main character. But then the second half oh, yeah. of this movie, Roy is the main character. Like it, he, the, it shifts. You know, you know, following Deckard, and now we're going to follow Roy and um, Roy and Pris and what's going on with them. And I love all that stuff so much. And I think that his character is by far like more compelling and and is definitely, uh, uh, you know, he he he's also more entertaining. Uh, he he literally chews up the dialogue, and it, it, every scene that he's in is great. 
and is always just shot so beautifully, like him in the rain with bleeding and all the stuff. Like, it's all great. I love it so much. Right. <laughs> it's like every frame of this movie is like a fucking visual painting. Oh, for sure. And some of them literally are. They're just like standing against matte paintings. <laughs> right, right. Gotta love a good old fashioned matte painting, man. There's love it. No, nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, Rucker Howard's Roy Batty is is the is uh, the, my favorite character of this movie. If I had to pick for I mean for all, for all the same reasons, but if I had to pick uh, like a secondary character that I like like about as much, um, J.F. Sebastian. You know, in in recent years, watching it, William Sanderson is J.F. Sebastian. Usually, William Sanderson usually plays slimy characters, skeezy characters, you know, right. conniving right. characters, and I think his performance of J.F. is a lot. I, I, you know, he, he's very childlike for a guy who's supposed to be like 24 or 25, but he looks like he's in his, you know, about to hit 60 because he's, you know, got, uh, I forgot what the name of the disease was that he had and I failed to write that down. But, you know, uh, as uh, Chris says at one point, he's like, you know, your accelerated decrepitude, which I thought was an interesting, almost underhanded way of like, you know, taking a jab at him, but. Yeah, I like J.F. Sebastian. He's just like a, a little kid in a, in a grown man's body. It's just a great, great little character. But yeah, every character in this movie is so great. Brian James is also really great as Leon, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, you know, the muscle of, of, of the group. Because it's obviously like when he has his interaction, when, you know, Harrison Ford doesn't find him or he finds Harrison Ford, you know, after post killing Azora. And just tears him apart, like just manhandles him like he's like just nothing. And it's only when Rachel shows up, you know, watching from the shadows that takes him out, you know, spoiler alert again, you know. But uh, I, I think <laughs> oh, Leon would have fucking uh, wasted Deckard in, in an, about two more seconds if he had the time. And what is it about them always wanting to shove their fingers into other people's eye sockets? I want to know if that was the. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's you know, um, uh, it comes down to the like because the eyes are a little bit of a tell, you know, and uh, you know when, when Roy uh, and the re and and um, the other guy when they go to the the guy who who makes the eyes. Oh, uh, Chew. You know, yeah, that, that played by James Hong. Yeah, fucking great comedic or uh, not comedic actor, but uh, character actor. Yeah. 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 When when they go to when they when they visit Chu and, you know, like he's talking to him and the other guy's just like resting eyeballs on his shoulders and like putting him on his head and stuff like that. <laughs> like there's definitely something with the eyes in this in this movie for sure. But I love uh, I forgot what they said the process was, but it was an old process of shining pinpoints of light at the actor's eyes to make them glow otherworldly. I forgot what the, I did read in the the Wikipedia what that process was, but again, another thing that I didn't write down because I got two pages of notes, but if I really wanted to, I could easily have like pages and pages and pages. Right. We, and we get glimpses of, you know, uh, every replicant, you know, in the movie, we do get a glimpse of their eyes kind of, you know, with that effect happening. But also, there is one moment in the movie, too, that I noticed today where Deckard's eyes also flickered like that. And oh, it's and it's and, but he's in the background and he's blurred out and Rachel's in the foreground and she like she's in focus. It's the effect is happening to her eyes and he's standing directly behind her and it's happening to his eyes, too. And it's happening because clearly on set they're you know, they're shining a light 
you know, there, or laser or what, whatever is giving that reflection, like that's in camera. That's not, a, you know, an effect in post. They're capturing that on the day. So whatever they're shining at her to get that reflection in her eyes is also hitting Harrison Ford in the background. Um, but he's he is out of focus, but you can just see the glint, like his pupils turning orange, like, but he is out of focus. And I think that that's a nice little even probably an accident thing that happened that still allows for them to you know play into that is he or isn't he a replicant kind of a feel yeah. I, I think it's it's an epic question just like at the you know uh, totally unrelated film but also sci-fi the thing you know it's like oh who's, yeah. who, yes. who's who's the thing at the end is like it raises such a big question but it's like we're not going to answer it we're going to let you, you come to that conclusion by yourself and like i like you, you said, it's, it's it's treating the audience like they're actually intelligent, which a lot of filmmakers don't tend to do. You know, they want to spell everything out for you with the, the studio meddling with, with this. You know, it's still a, a, a classic film with the, the theatrical cut. But folks, I got to implore you, if you haven't seen the final cut, you are totally missing out on just them making something that was always already a slice of fried gold, you know, even better. I, I think that the final cut is uh, just—it's a, a behemoth of a film, to be quite For honest. For sure. But uh, you, you know, uh, what I—the character I feel the most sorry for in this movie is. You know, first and foremost, I feel sorry for the replicants because they're just made to be you know, born and bred to be slaves and they just want to live. I mean, they're just poor characters that just <laughs> they just want the same thing that the rest of us want. They want the answers. You know, where do I come from? Where am I going? How can I live longer? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. how can I pr prevent the inevitable inevitable? But again, another minor character that I feel the most sorry for. And again, is J.F. Sebastian. They, they find him, they use him, the replicants do, you know, when Pris finds him and, you know, kind of lures him in by pretending to be a lost little damsel in distress when they have their little altercation outside his apartment. Oh, and I got a uh, break here for a second, have a, <clears throat> a left turn with my own left turn here. Uh, <laughs> th th there's a bit of trivia that I didn't know until uh, I was today's years old when I learned this, the uh, You'll you'll recognize the sequence when Pris is, runs from you know fakes being scared by JF and runs and runs into his car and actually knocks out the window with her arm. Yeah, that was an accident. That was not breakaway glass. That was a real real window. She broke it open with her elbow. I guess chipped her elbow in seven or eight places and had to have a surgery. Still has a scar to this day. Oh wow! But that was a happy accident that they kept in the film because they thought it. That she just kept rolling with it. And, you know, to know that that was done in that, you know, again, like kind of said, in like an in-camera thing that just uh, wasn't staged and then just kind of happened that way. But it that, seemed uh, in the in the moment when I was watching it today, I, I felt like, like it was a little clunky. Like when I when it happened, I was like it to me, I was like, I wonder why they did that. Like, that's why that was my actual question in my head was like, I wonder why they decided to have her break out the window like that. But now it makes sense because <laughs> yeah. it was an accident, which is great. And I, you, you got to love when an actor is strong enough to just keep going and on both their parts because he's in the foreground i believe of that shot mm -hmm. but on both their parts to to just keep going like dicaprio in django unchained when he cut his hand open on the glass and he's bleeding oh yeah and he's bleeding over real. everything and, yeah like he they just kept rolling yeah uh, i think it's it's a testament to good again uh, good direction good acting and uh you know people being consummate professionals it's like oh i got hurt like, am I hurt or am I injured? If you're hurt, you keep going. If you're injured, you stop. Right. <laughs> you know. Uh, now, I got another question for you. And uh, this may 
seems like out of left field kind of question, but all all this is out of left field. Um, do you have a, a certain aspect of this film that is your favorite? You know, narrowing it down to one little aspect of filmmaking, whether it's, you know, the acting, the directing, the the writing, or the cinematography, or the music, which I think all this is, is, is top-notch things, but what is your favorite aspect of this film? It, it's really hard to say because everything in this movie is, like, out of 10. Like, everything is great. Like, the score is just incredible. The cinematography, if I, I mean, I'm like, that's who I am. I'm a cinematographer. Like, I, you know, the my love of photography is so strong that I have to say that probably the cinematography is my is my favorite part of it. But, like, the set design is just incredible. I, I, watching it today, I was really watching, since I just watched it last week, watching it today, I was really trying to, focus on background characters and and uh, just extras and kind of things that are happening in the background it just blows my mind how much is going on like can you imagine directing that many people it's raining like just there's so many moving parts you've got there's one scene you know where he's like eating the noodles uh for like I think it's the mm-hmm. second time when he gets food in the movie there's a dude with like a big ass crow that's just like walking through the frame and it's like flapping like crazy and he's holding on to it and like there's so much happening in this movie it's it's in it's just insane uh but if i have to pick one thing i'd say probably cinematography followed very closely behind by like set design just because that kind of goes hand in hand with the photography yeah, I, I agree with you on both counts, uh, the cinematography and uh, I was going to say the set design because it's flawless. You know, it, every bit of this movie just it feels like the whole city is wet, you know, because it's always raining. Everything feels like it's rotting from the inside out, especially when you get to that last 20 minutes or so that's at J.F. Sebastian's place. You just feel every, you know, moldy you know, rotten board in this building, <laughs> you know, you can feel it. You can almost smell the, the, the mildew of the city, you know, and the set design, I just, uh, it's a chef's kiss to this film. It's like taking a cake, you know, having your cake, being able to eat it too, but having a cake layered with like this, these nice little cherries on top and the cherry on top is the set design. I'd have to agree too. But uh, some of the other aspects that I love of this film is how close some of the, the tech is you know, to, uh, you know, to modern day tech, you know, on a different level, a lot less dystopian, but like Photoshop, you know, or the the photo enhancement of the future is right. rather foretelling. It is, but it's also, you know, it's also, you know, one of those things where, uh, you know, the more you. Yeah, it's, photography just doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's, right, my, right. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, uh, it's definitely, uh, you know, obscured, I guess, maybe not uh, well, the greatest it, it of became words. A, it just became, like, almost parodied so much within the world of, of uh, you know, cop drama television after that, you know, where it's just, like, enhance. And, like, they even do it in Super Troopers, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that part with Favre, like, enhance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's, it, I still think it's, it's a great angle. It does show how, you know, science fiction does become in an, in an effectual way, become science fact eventually. Oh, like definitely. It, it's just like Star Trek with their, you know, their, the comm links and the telecommunicators, you know, just like those are basically just cell phones now. <laughs> you know? Right. And like, you know, like. I think they thought, you know, science fiction of the future was going to be having video conference calls on your phone. And, you know, they they have that was here, but it was 1982 or slash 2019 by their count. But but now we have those, 
you know, it's much different, much different kind of technology. I, I do like the, the fact that when he does try to call Rachel up, when Deckard uses the video conference call, he's just trying to get her to come down to the bar and have a drink. And she hangs up on him, as she rightly should have. But it's just like the charge that comes up, it's like charges $1.25. Like, really? For, for <laughs> you know, a three-minute phone conference? Like, right. But yeah, that's just, just nice, nice little, you know, notes that I, I, I love about this film. The one thing that I feel is, and I know what they were going for here, and I'm, I'm curious to what you think about this, is... The, the one part of the movie that just takes it down a notch for me for one scene, and it doesn't ruin the film at all on any level, but it just makes me raise an eyebrow, is Ford's uh, Harrison Ford's fake uh, or accent when he or the or the oh, voice that what? he does when he's like, <laughs> yeah. "Hey, hi, I'm from the code uh, team for moral abuses," you know, and this is like, "Oh man," it's like. I, I just wonder if that was something that was discussed or DeFord just did that or, or because it's just when he confronts Zora, like, you know, I, the note I made previous to this is Deckard is actually a good detective. You know, he takes, you know, an apartment building where he finds a, a snake scale and then goes to the district where, you know, these people make because there are no real animals anymore. There's fake owls, fake birds, fake snakes. And he takes that scale. And he manages to hunt down Zora. That's how he, you know, finds her. And so, in, in essence, he's a great detective, but he's not a great at uh, subterfuge. I guess this is for lack of a better term, because that voice is horrible, man. It is horrible. Um, and I questioned it this time around too when I was watching it. I was just like, you know, is the voice necessary? Does but in this world that they're in, you know. Coming into, uh, you know, it basically like, you know, what is it like the dressing room for like a, like a strip club? Yeah, uh, basically. You know, and so coming into there, if you come in, you know, more macho, you know, which is kind of Harrison Ford's like main deal, like this new art detective, like, you know, he's got some gruff about him. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. that you, I think you probably get an immediate response to, you know, this guy's a cop. So like by downplaying it to this kind of like very, uh, you know, subdued, like uh, just uh, like kind of a weaker man, kind of a kind of a, of a you know, nerdy kind of thing. I think it, 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 it you know, I understand why, <laughs> but but yeah, I to, but I totally feel you. Yeah. For aesthetic choices is just it just seems it just seemed odd, you know, like I get it like he had to he had to pretend to be somebody else. But at the same time, it was like really that's that's the direction that you went with it's like okay and i don't think he had her i don't think he ever had her fooled for a hot second no and that's, that's the other thing too yeah zora knew exactly what was going on the minute she uh, she laid eyes on him and it's the hard i think it's the, the, one of the two hardest scenes in this movie to watch is when he you know chases her down when she, you know, uh, attacks him, but almost kills him and then goes running. He finds her and shoots her in the back. You know, is this a hard scene to watch? Just like at the end when, you know, again, spoiler alert, when, uh, you know, Deckard find, you know, finds out where Sebastian li lives and beats Roy Batty getting back there and kills Pris. You know, when Rucker Hauer finds her, the, the horror, you know, and this, the, Oh God, it's such a heart wrenching scene when he sees her. And, and there's something that I talk about here on almost every uh, one of these Rucker Howard shows is 
Ruckerhauer is very touchy-feely, and I don't mean that in a creepy way, but he's very hands-on. He, he touches objects, touches people, caresses his own face, and touches just things. He's very hands-on with his acting. But when he touches her body and he gets the blood on his hands and he touches it to his face like he's dabbing it, like it's like he can't believe it's real, like like it's finally come to this. Like he's always suspected that, you know, the, expected that they were all going to be bumped off. But I think he felt like that him and Pris were untouchable. And it's so hard when he finally realizes that she's gone and he's the last one. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree with that. Like that, that is that that's a great observation that I guess, you know, going through all these movies with him. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that I would pick that up. I, I, you know, I, but you're right now going there and watching a bunch of stuff with them. So that, that's a great observation. I like that. Yeah. I just, I've always noticed it in, in the past, you know, I or kind of noticed it, but this, especially with these, you know, I've watched like uh, 15 or so, uh, record hour movies in the last month or so preparing for this. And I'm just like, he's just very hands-on and touching and caressing objects or people or himself, you know, it's just very yeah, very handsy kind of actor, and it's just, you know, it's just a, it's a neat attribute. You don't see a lot of that. You know, people usually act with objects rather than, you know, you, you know, and uh, in, in a different, just in a different sort of way. And I just appreciate that about him. Uh, poses a this poses a great question uh, when Rachel s- says, uh, "I'm making a left turn here." When she poses a great question, and I love how everything stops at this point in the movie, backtracking just a little bit, when she says to Deckard, have you ever taken the Voight Voight Cop uh, test yourself? And he just goes silent. He never tells her yes or no. And I think that raises the question there, right there, between... He, he make, uh, there's a turn with the Decker character. Uh, uh, there's two different turns. There's this that turn when she asks him that question and he doesn't answer. Or after killing Zora... And Bryant comes up to him and reminds him that there's like, you know, there's like, I can't remember how many says there's three to go. And he's like, or no, there's, he says there's four to go. And he's like, no, there's three to go. And he's like, oh, didn't you know it? He's like that skin job or the replicant that uh, you did the Voight comp test on at uh, the Tyrell Corporation just disappeared. Didn't even know she was a replicant. So he's like insinuating like, yeah, you're going to have to kill Rachel too. And I think that's where he makes the. That that's definitely the turning decision. point. Yeah, that's yeah, his, yeah, yeah, that's his conscious decision right then and there that, you know, he's already been, I think, on the fence for a while. And at that moment, he's like, yo, but she hasn't done anything like she's not at a, at risk, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's a. But it is yes. there's that moral question, though, I mean, or or that, that that question of when you are told you're one thing only to find out that you're something completely different, especially to find out that you're not human. Like that's a pretty big deal. Uh, (laughs) So if you are, if you are, you know, believe, if you believe that you are human only to find out that you're not now, what does that do to to your psyche and how does that break you? And to find out the memories that you have in your head aren't real. Now, could Rachel then become, you know, murderous, you know, like Roy. Maybe, you know what I mean? I mean, and and that's the risk. And, you know, it, it all comes down to, you know, you, you watch the movie like Ex Machina. Yeah, yeah. You seen that? Like, like that that movie, you know, has has a lot of similar themes as this, you know, with like more, you know, focused on AI and 
And, you know, if it can think and choose and, you know, do these things, is it alive and or is it property? And like in Ex Machina, you know, Oscar Isaac's character, it is, you know, he views uh, I can't think of the character's name, but the AI and he views her as his property. He built it. It's a machine that he made, you know, Uh, it's almost like a pet. In, yeah, in a manner of speaking. But from like his perspective, she's not human because he made her. But you know, <laughs> it, right? It's 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 such a there's you know it's an, it's existential crisis is all it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's like Pris says at one point to Sebastian, I think Sebastian, therefore I am. You right. know, and it's it poses that question: if 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 you can think, are you human? I mean it. It's a crazy question. <laughs> it goes to show you what happens when people play God. <laughs> I think you know. It's a there's a lot of things that you, besides existential crisis that you think you got to take into consideration when creating another being. It's just it's it's questions that we still don't have answers for. You know, I don't think it's just like there's it's just like this movie. You know, poses a lot of question, not a whole lot of answers. But uh, I think the one thing that the that bothers me this much about the, the so much about this movie, or at least a scene that bothers me on a on an emotional level, is how Roy and Pris use Sebastian, and because he's like the one kind of the, the one character that's uh, somewhat innocent of what's going on. You know, yeah, he's a you know he's into genetics. He helped make them. He helped program them. And as it even says, there's a part of me in you. But, you know, they use him to get into the Tyrell Corporation with disastrous results. And this is also another scene that I think the director's cut or the final cut fixes from the theatrical cut and from some of the other cuts is they, you know, there's no dot, you know, the, the dialogue, the line when uh, Roy says to him, I want more life, father. They kind of fixed the flub in the line because people have for so long thought that he said, I want more life, fucker. And I think <laughs> I them, that. yeah, they actually fixed a little bit of the audio to make it so it's not so much sounding like fucker and, and says father. And so whether or not, you know, I'd have to read the script to know what the original line was. But I guess that was a conscious decision that Ridley Scott wanted to make. He didn't want the he felt the line too vulgar, <laughs> you know, so. And yeah, I when, totally understand that when he uses the, you know, their chess playing motif uh, between uh, Sebastian and Tyrell to get into the place. And then, you know, there's that, that, that nice tense one-off scene between Roy Batty and Tyrell when he's, you know, he's telling him, he's like, I want more life. He's like, you know, and he tells him, you know, the light that burns twice as bright ha- burns half as long. And, but that doesn't satiate Roy, you know, once he realizes that he runs everything by him, he's like, listen, everything that you're talking about, because Rooker Hauer's character is so intelligent that he's already thought this through of how many things that they could have done to them to maybe give them more life. And Tyrell says to him, you know, that all this just results in a virus that shuts the body down. You know, you can't, you know, this, this can't be replicated. You were made to have, you know, a four-year lifespan and just accept it. And so what does... Right, Batty do. He crushes uh, Tyrell's heads with his bare hands and pops his eyeballs out with his thumbs. And it's quite a horrifying, you know, uh, it's, you know, this movie has actually, you know, got a fair amount of blood in it when the, the, the scene calls for it. And this is like right out of a Friday the 13th movie. He was just like <laughs> Jason Voorhees crushing skulls. And when I he- miss I miss movies like this. 
I miss, you know, there's an element to, uh, you know, letting a movie get gory when it should get gory. Uh, and I, you know, we don't, we don't get that anymore. And one of the, one of the movies that we, you know, that does that really well, I, I think is uh, drive. You know, I was thinking like, the same thing. The same movie was it popped in my head when you said that. But yeah, like we just don't get that very much. And, and, and you know, I, it's something that I, I miss in in, you know, today's cinema. Uh, and, you know, it's just kind of, you know, refreshing to see, uh, you know, his eyes actually get, uh, you know, gouged out of his head. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they did the right thing. And I'm not sure what you think about this uh, and not showing him kill Sebastian, although you know that he's dead because when Bryant, you know, calls Deckard about and gives him the, the information saying that Tyrell was dead and then a 25-year-old man that was unidentified, but then they found out who he was. Like, when he goes after him in the theatrical cut, he says nothing. But in the, the final cut, there's another thing that they fixed that I thought was uh, was just, you know, an admittedly, you know, great addition. When Roy Batty slowly walks after him, he's like, I'm sorry, Sebastian, but come, come. You know, it's just like, oh, like, like, I'm sorry, but I'm I'm going to have to crush your head, too. Right. <laughs> it's just kind of. But, uh, yeah, I think they made the right decision by not showing Sebastian die and just kind of leaving it uh, ambiguous. But I don't know. You know, I agree. It, yeah, it's it's just uh, sad to think that, you know, he was already rapid, rapidly aging and heading towards an early grave. He just didn't really realize, you know, how early it was going to be. And. I love the fact that Roy Batty, you know, who's finds Tyrell as such a father figure that he gives him a goodbye kiss, like a death kiss. You know, he gives him a kiss right before he crushes his skull. Like, well, can't help me. You're no good to me. Kiss of death. Like just eerie. Yeah, I like I like the feels you get from it. Like him kissing him is it's uncomfortable and it's just I don't know. It's it. It adds a whole new layer to the dynamic, to this like father-son like relationship. I, I, I love it all. I, I, I really love that death scene quite a lot. And I, this poses the next question I have for you is what do you think of the final sequences? Uh, the, the final kind of third act that we get when, you know, Deckard goes to Sebastian's place and takes on Pris and, and, and Roy Batty, you know, just... I feel, just to give my summary of it, is that by all intents and purposes, Decker should have died there <laughs> because he was outmanned and out intelligenced and everything. But he right. probably should have died. I, I mean, he no, he he should have and would have died. Roy spared him. Yes, like Roy spared him. You know, which you know, like earlier in the film when Rachel uh, kills, I forget the other guy's name. Oh, when she shoots him. Leon, when when Rachel shoots Leon, you know, that's what solidifies us as an audience to go, OK, she's good. Like, she's not going to turn bad because she's going to, you know, save Deckard in this moment or whatever and, and kill someone, you know, kill, kill someone who is like she is. Roy, you know, has been a character of violence throughout the entirety of the film. And then in, the, in his final moments, when he's about to die, let's Deckard live to show Deckard that he can make a choice. He can make that choice and that, you know, they aren't what society is trying to paint them as. And uh, I think it's beautiful that he let, he lets them live, but yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, 
that's the whole point of the Nexus six replicants is that they are stronger. They are better. They are, they are more human than human, you know? And, uh, uh, so the, the decision to let Deckard live for, for Roy to let Deckard live, I think is a, I think it's a brilliant one. And again, another scene that was made better with the, the final cut of not having that overtly ham fisted and heavy handed, uh, narration of, why he did it it's like he had to save a life even if it was my life and blah 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 and it's like right. the voiceover is just like just let it be what it is and not have to explain it and hit us over the head with it i think people know that like oh in his final moments of living he took pity on deckard and saved him but not before putting him through an insane amount of torture you know <laughs> after discovering he had killed chris and uh decker got lucky there i, I think decker got lucky of being able to get to his gun before Pris could, you know, do another judo kick to him and break his freaking neck. But like when she goes nuts and she's just going <laughs> spastic yeah. and kicking and screaming. Right. Well, that that's part of the thing too, that I, I, I kind of laughed at today was cause like, she like, she like flips through the room and like, you know, kicks him and then knocks him down. And then she's like on top of his head and like spins, spins him around and grabs him by his nostrils and knocks him to the ground right then. She could have killed him, but she decided to run back into the other room and then flip through the room again. And then she gets shot. Right. <laughs> but bad, bad choices, bad choices. That's the only, that's the, that, that might be the only thing in this movie that I felt was just slightly disjointed from everything else. Uh, because I felt like in that that fight is like really action heavy in comparison to the rest of the movie. Like his fight with Roy is not an action scene. It is still a scene of drama. And, but his scene with with uh, is it Pris? Is that her name? Yeah, Pris. Like, yeah. Yeah. When, when his scene with her is very much them trying to like put an action beat into the movie. And I, I, I think I think it's fun. And, uh, and you know, it, it is like, I don't know, it kind of made me laugh today when I watched it. But uh but I think she's incredible. Like I love that actress so much. Oh yeah, Daryl Hannah is amazing in this. It's still my favorite role of hers. Yeah, but you're, I you're like right. her Kill Bill. Kill Bill. Oh yeah, another good one. There's one called Clan of the Cave Bear. If you haven't seen it, there's a really strange, odd film with her that's uh, also very, very good. Um, I'll check that out. No, another '80s uh, forgotten gem. <laughs> but um, yeah, let's talk about the, the the final moments with Batty and uh, Roy Batty and Rick, Rick Deckard. Like, I, I think he's just playing with them the entire time. It's like a cat playing with a mouse. It's a complete cat and mouse uh, sequence. You know, he he could have killed him, you know, at any point. But he decides to just play with them. He's like, you know, I'm going to give you a chance, you know, more than you gave us. And, you know, when he put, when he pulls his arm through the, the, the hole in the wall and breaks his fingers, he gives him the gun back. He's like, all you got to do is shoot straight. And he, he tries, but he only ends up blowing off a chip of Roy's ear. And for the rest of it is just Roy chasing him down, you know, and doing little rhymes. You know, he's like, I'll give him a, you know, I'm going to give you a count to 10. And he gets, you know, six, seven, go to hell or go to heaven. And then. There's a Ford try so hard to fight back. He blasts him in the head with a pipe a couple of times. And all it does to Roy is piss him off. And he's like, oh, come on. That's the spirit. You know, it's like he's so playful with him. It's like a child playing with a new toy. And I think that's one aspect that I like about this. If you really watch this movie over again with new eyes, the they're so hyper intelligent and they're so hyper aware the replicants are, but if you really pay attention, they are very childlike because, you know, they only have four years of experiences to base their actions on. 
And you right. look in like, you know, like <laughs> just like, for instance, just to backtrack here for a hot second, when Roy first, you know, makes himself known at, at uh, Sebastian's place and he's like, oh, gosh, you, you sure got a lot of neat toys here. You know, <laughs> and it's just very comical, very childlike. Right. And well, with that being said, you know, that makes Pris's actions and flipping through the room even more, you know, you just you just you just you just you just justified it for me a little bit more because <laughs> it is childlike. I have a seven year old. That's exactly what she would do. <laughs> right. she, would, she would kick and scream and throw her fists and stomp her feet. And, <laughs> yeah. And run through the room and act like she's, you know, just this awesome ninja. <laughs> There you go. See, yeah, see, I, I, I'm changing minds here. <laughs> yep. But the, the, I think we got one little, little, one small beat to talk about here, and then we can start summing things up. But the moment where Roy Batty's saves Deckard, and he just sits and looks at him, and I think, I don't think until the moment where Batty dies, which is you know in about sixty seconds, that Deckard had any idea what was coming next. Because he's he looks shocked. He, I mean, he's in pain. He's been you know his fingers broken. He's been beaten up and busted up. He's, you know, we try to jump across the chasm between the two different uh, buildings. He doesn't make it, and of course, you know, who makes the the jump with the greatest of ease? Roy Batty does because he's so much better than everybody else. But that that final speech, and I'll have to to quote it here, and I'm not going to do it any justice. So please, no hate mail, folks, because I am not Rucker Hour. But the, his final. Sp- Moments there where he says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. And all those moments will be lost in time, like tears and rain. And he just smiles and says, time to die. No big grand speeches. And there was supposed to be a big monologue. I watched some of the behind-the-scenes stuff in interviews with Rucker Hauer, and he had, he had brought you know his goods to the table with uh, Ridley Scott and he's like you know this guy's dying he only has a few moments he's not gonna make a big speech let's take it down to like three lines and then at the end uh, he added in the line of uh, all those moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain time to die that was Rucker Hauer's addition to the the cause and I think it's that's so, the best line yeah this is the <laughs> best line in the movie and you know it, it's again i use the term chef's kiss a lot but mwah, just a chef's kiss to this ending uh, now I, I like the ending that we get you know the little additional ending where gaff shows up and he kind of gives him that line it's too bad she won't live but then again who does and i think he you know when decker goes back to his apartment and finds rachel there i think he thought you know she was going to be dead too but for some reason she lived and would live on for quite a few years according to the sequel but when he leaves and he finds that, that uh, like I said, the little tinfoil origami uh, unicorn, and it ends with them going into the elevator, is just boom, cut, titles, much better ending than the happy ending we, that the studio forced upon them with them, you know, escaping, going, you know, off world, so to speak, you know, to another country or something, making a run for it and escaping the authorities. Again, it's 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 just it was a little too ham fisted in the theatrical cut, but I like the 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 final cut ending where it ends right there because again, it keeps that question floating in the air is uh, you know is he or isn't he, you know, and I I, I think the sequel you know kind of like it says plays with that notion a little bit, but it doesn't give you any answers right because they never really tell you like 
He could be. He's just not telling anybody. But I like the fact that, you know, it could be. I like I like the question being presented in that uh, that fashion. I'm not sure what you think about it, but I, I love the way this ends. No, I, I absolutely love the like kind of ambiguous ending to the whole thing. Like it, 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 I like movies that make you think and this movie, when it ends, it, it wants you to reflect upon the theme of the movie and, and, you know, just. you know, ponder these characters and, and, and try and, you know, kind of figure out, you know, what do you think? What do you, what do you think was right? Like, you know, did, you know, did Deckard do, you know, the right thing? Was Roy justified in, in everything that he's doing? You know, like I, I, I love movies that beg you to rewatch them like that. And that's what this movie does. It, it makes you want to rewatch it to answer those questions. Exactly. Well, that being said, I think we can get into our final thoughts on this one. Um, I guess the question I am going to ask you is to give your your final thoughts on the film and how they change, you know, because I already asked you earlier, you know, what your initial impressions were and how how those impressions have changed over the years. And to give your, of course, the rating on a scale from one to ten. Uh, for me, you know, as I said earlier, this movie, I didn't really resonate with me the first time that I watched it. And I think that I, you know, I, you know, maybe, I, you know, I watched the wrong version or, or, you know, just, added, you know, maybe it just, you know, went over my head a little bit. I'm not sure. I know that every time I watch this movie, I, I gain something new from it. Um, I am a person though, that I like the sequel more. I think that 2049 is a, is a better movie. Ooh, um, shots fired. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, but Denis, uh, I don't not like, I, you know, I always butcher his last name, like Denis uh, Villeneuve or Villeneuve, Villeneuve, I'm not, I'm not sure how to say his I, name. I have no <laughs> idea how to say it right, and even um, if I did, I'd probably get it wrong. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but Denis is my, he's my current favorite director. I, I love every single movie that he's made. Uh, they're all like become easily my favorite movies. And uh, so, uh, uh, 2049 is in my in my I think it's a it's a more superior neo noir film than what this movie is only because I think that the pace of this movie could be increased just ever so slightly and 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 I'm not to take away from the beautiful landscapes and things that are in this because the cinematography is absolutely wonderful and I love the long like shots and I love the stuff that holds but I do think that the total runtime on this movie could be cut down by you know 15 minutes or so you know but that would probably be my 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 nitpicky one little thing about the movie that I I I you know I think could could be improved upon mm-hmm. uh but ultimately I I think this is like you know it's a damn near perfect film I I I, if I if I'm going to rate it, uh, I'd probably, you know, go nine out of ten on this. I, I, I love this movie. I agree with you on, on several levels. Um, I can't agree that I think 2049 is the superior film. It's right up there. I mean, it's like if I had to give a rating, I'm going to pull my rating right here now. But I would give the, the sequel a nine. I give this one a ten. Right. Well, at and, the same and, time. I would in mine would be the opposite of that, you know. Yeah. So we're not that far off. No. I you know, for for the the, the thing I'll, I'll you know I always credit to us uh, to sequels. Most sequels because we get this a lot. We live in a very nostalgia heavy world where movies 
you know, we're, we're, they're, they're capitalizing on our love of these franchises. And, and this movie not really being much of a franchise. It was one movie, and now 30 years later, they made another movie. Um, but uh, 2049, to be as good as it is, it, it doesn't it doesn't have any right being as good as it is. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, no, <laughs> like, not, not, not at all. It, like, a movie made 30-some-odd years after the fact, you know, it, it should have been disastrous. And it was still so good. And they are turning this into a franchise. They had three short films that, that came out with uh, the 2049. Uh, right. I forgot the name. I think they were called Blackout, uh, Nowhere to yeah. Run, and I can't remember the third one. Yeah, and those are all really good, too. I really enjoy all yeah. those. Yeah, I love those, and I really want to see Black Lotus now that I know the, that you've uh, broke my mind here and actually let me know that it's on HBO. I have HBO, so I will have to watch that. <laughs> and in November of last year, the uh, Ridley Scott has uh, said that there was a a pilot for a Blade Runner television series, and that they were going to be you know making a, a at least a short run of ten ten one hour episodes. Oh wow! And but then he also said that they were going to be making uh, a movie called Blade Runner twenty ninety nine. So I don't know if that if the TV show has evolved into the movie or the movie evolved into right. the TV show or what, or if they're two separate entities. Well, but, also, uh, you know, it all depends too, because twenty forty nine bombed in the box office. So you know, all of that might have been canceled because <laughs> as good of a movie as twenty forty nine is, it it was not a commercial success. It was a critical success, but it was not a commercial success. So, I, uh, uh, so you know, it it was for me. It just kind of blew my mind that they were like, okay, well, you made this movie, and nobody really went out to the theaters to watch it. Um, so let's just give you Dune and we'll try that one. But that kind of seems like it's happening with Dune too. But Dune, you know, they're still they're still going to finish Dune. But. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy that the, we're getting these. I call them nostalgia bomb movies. You know, thirty years, forty years after the fact, like making sequels and stuff like Blade Runner and you know legacy sequels as they call them, like to to Halloween yes. and things. It's it's really weird. And some of them, you know, had just been. A movie. They haven't been nothing to really write home about, but I think the, you know, the the Blade Runner sequel was just twenty forty nine was infinitely much better than it had any right to be. Oh yeah. But that being said, um, that's going to conclude our bit on the Blade Runner uh, part of things. But now I have a quick couple of Rucker Howard centric questions for you, if you don't mind, before we go. Now the. It's basically a two-parter question since we are celebrating the works of uh, Rucker Hauer, but it's a two-parter. Do you have a favorite Rucker Hauer movie? And if it's not the same film, what is your favorite Rucker Hauer role? Okay, my favorite uh, movie of his would be this movie. It would be Blade Runner. But okay, Fair enough. But performance-wise, I really, really like Hobo with a Shotgun. <laughs> uh, we just covered that one last week it's a great movie yeah uh hobo with a shotgun um um and uh um what am i what am i thinking and machete those are two movies that uh kick-started my kind of like love of grindhouse movies and made me start like going back and watching other grindhouse movies and then meeting you and you know things that you've recommended and things but um uh but yeah, Hobo with a Shotgun was a movie that was like on my radar from the moment it was announced. And for, I just fell in love with the title. And then, you know, like, how can you not? Right. Yeah. It was a per perfect title. 
All right. Well, that's a good answer. I, I did not see that one coming. Uh, I've, 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 I've just, just so you know, I've already uh, said this on the show many times. My, my, my favorite role is probably with him and the Hitcher because I don't think he was ever more any kind of more sinister or evil in that movie, and he just that movie totally would have not worked without with anybody else. Uh, if you if, if you've never seen the Hitcher, I highly highly recommend it. Yeah, I have not. So yeah, it's a it gr- it's a great film. Now there is a sequ not a, no, well there is a sequel, but uh, I haven't seen it, so I can't base any opinion on that one. But I don't know much about it. But uh, there's a remake that stars Sean Bean that is as equally good, but just you know just a little less. You know me, I'm not much of a remake guy, but I, I have to recommend the the, the remake as well. It's, it's it's pretty damn good stuff. You won't hear me say that often. <laughs> yeah, the Hitcher. If you have not seen it, yeah, definitely seek it out. I think it believe I believe that's also on HBO Max. But uh, that being said, I think we can nip this one in the bud. Do you have before we go? Do you have anything coming up that you want to plug before we get off the air? Um, nothing super crazy. I mean, I did just wrap production on uh, the Undesirables, which is my first feature length film. Um, I also don't know if you can hear, but my neighbor's now mowing. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, I can hear a hint uh, of it. Mine started yeah. back up too. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think he's weed eating, maybe. But um, uh, but no, Bastards. I just yeah, I just fil- finished uh, production on on the Undesirables, which is my first feature length movie, and uh, that starred some cool people uh, like Felissa uh, Rose and uh, Ryan Woodle, um, Hannah Fearman. You know, uh, Michael Taylor wrote it. He's a uh, uh, a good friend of mine become a you know producer writer actor on the movie uh you were in it uh, yes you know, it was a small little you know little cameo in there we got hey, help me check uh, up a bucket list item of being in a high spill man so thank you <laughs> yeah uh anytime so, so we, we've right now i'm just you know deep into post-production on that so that's what i'm gonna do with the rest of my day today and uh so keep an eye out on that rad entertainment on uh on all the socials to uh, stay in the loop on where that's going. Right on. Well, congratulations for getting through all your uh, pre-production and uh, actual production. And hopefully uh, you will have a very smooth, smooth ride with your post-production stuff. Because I know sometimes editing and audio and going through all those takes can be quite nerve-wracking. So I wish you all the best. Thank you. Well, thank you again. I want to thank you for taking a you know a couple hours out of your time because I know you're like me. You always give these movies a couple of watches, and so you got to delve delve into you know a couple hours to do that, and then a couple hours to do the show. So I appreciate you giving me uh, you know a good chunk of your valuable time, and it was fun. Uh, I had a lot, a lot of fun reviewing this one with you. I had fun with it too. I you know anytime you know anytime you want me on the show, I'm always always down to talk movies. It is my favorite subject to talk about. Mostly, really? Mine too. No. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine In that. case you have noticed. Uh, well, th- again, thank you, sir, for uh, taking some time out of your day. I really appreciate it. And folks at home listening, we want to thank you for tuning in. You can find uh, Cinema Degeneration on Facebook, uh, Instagram soon to probably be on Twitter. And I'm thinking about starting a TikTok, so you can look into those avenues as well. But if you click like like a link 
review, rate us, don't do all those good things that you can do for our podcast to really make us shine and to really get us noticed. Uh, well, you can find us everywhere. Find podcasts are sold. Just type in Cinema Degeneration and you will find us everywhere. But I want to thank you folks. You have been listening to us to review and dissecting Blade Runner starring the one and only Rucker Hauer. And help the of life. Fiery the angels fell, deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of Hawk.